John 16. (laughs) It was a troubling night for the apostles. Troubling night for Jesus. In fact, He looked troubled. He became troubled in front of them. They saw that look on His face and that troubled them because I think that probably was quite unusual to see on the face of their of their Lord. And He began looking around the room as He talked to them, as He opened up and shared with them, and they began to look troubled. And so, on that night, He says to the eleven, huddled in the upper room, John 14, verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. And so that's how this teaching truly begins. He does some amazing teaching in John chapter 13, but he launches into this this section, a, a vision we've called it for the troubled life. And the first verse of John 14 is just that. Do not let your heart be troubled. What's interesting is how he bookends the entire teaching when he comes around to the end of chapter 16, verse 33, and he says, Take courage, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And everything that comes in between those two statements by Jesus brings comfort. Not soft, fluffy comfort, like we talked about Sunday, like a comforter, but strong advocacy. A comfort of strength. A comfort of remembrance. As Jesus says, my spirit's going to bring to you. And so these encapsulate his last teaching. And then in verse 1 of chapter 16, as we continue on, he says, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. These things, he says, what things? Well, specifically, he has just come off of part of this teaching where he has said, if the world hates you, you know it has hated me before you. And so Jesus now more specifically illuminates that hatred. Verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. That was a big deal. If you were Jewish, that is outcast not just from going to church. It's not just like a pastor calling up and saying, don't come back to church. Fine, I'll just go to one of the dozens of other churches around here. I'll show you. (laughs) To be cast out of the synagogue. I mean, that was Jewish religious life. Jewish social life, Jewish family life, everything surrounded the synagogue. The synagogue would sit in the middle of the city. Even the towns would surround the synagogue. Everything hummed and, and, and peaked off of the synagogue. And Jesus says, look, I want you to know. You need to understand. You will be outcasts from the very center of your entire life up to this point. That's what he's saying. Again, that's a... That's a big deal. You might say, well, they're Christians. What do they need the synagogue for? Well, as you know, the earliest Christians were Jews who still went to synagogue, who who still kept Shabbat, who still, for the most part, observed the festivals and feasts. Till AD 70, the temple was wiped out, taken down by Rome, completely destroyed. And even so, they would maintain certain customs of their Jewish culture, of their Jewish faith. And even after the persecutions that came by both Jews and by Rome against those early Christians, John wrote this account. He wrote the account we've talked about in the late 90s. So roughly 20 years after the fall of Jerusalem, maybe a little further, 25 years after that happened. The Sanhedrin had been dispersed. Well, at this point, 20, 25 years later, Rome had allowed for the Sanhedrin to regroup, the Jewish ruling council. 
And so they were regrouped, and among them, in the first century, was a man by the name of Samuel the Less. Samuel the Less. And he came along and reworded a daily synagogue prayer. This would go out to all the synagogues throughout all the land, and it was a prayer to smoke out Christians. They should have called this guy instead of Samuel the Less, they should have called him Nevertheless, because I think that would have fit a little better. The original line in the synagogue prayer was, let all wickedness perish as in a moment, and let those who practice such things be blotted out of the book of life and not be enrolled with the righteous. Samuel the less reworded it. This went out to the synagogues and was prayed, let all Nazarenes and heretics perish as if in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be enrolled with the righteous. Now, see, the thing is, you could sit silently if you were a, a Christian, if you were a Nazarene, a follower of this, of this Jesus, if you were part of that sect. Well, you could go to synagogue and sit down, and when that part of the prayer came, just not say it, right? But if you didn't say it, they knew. And once they knew, out you go. You could be kicked out of the synagogue. Anyone who kept silent. But that wasn't even the worst of it. Jesus says, not only will they make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. This is 600 plus years before Islam. Today we would say there are those who would kill Christians thinking they are doing so in the service of God. They're called ISIS or Al-Qaeda or the global jihad movement. How is this possible back in the first century? Well, one of our church leaders was one of those who thought that by killing Christians, he could be in service to God. His name was Saul, Shaul, at the time. Jesus caught hold of him and spun him around, but he would later write in Philippians 3, 6, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And Acts chapter 9, verse 1, tells us Saul was breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. In Acts chapter 22, verse 20, Paul said, And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by, approving, and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. Can you imagine carrying that vision with you your whole entire life? That your Shaul renamed Paul, and now, Paul, you would recall before you gave your life to Jesus, the slaying of Stephen, standing there in approval. Yeah, watch your coats. Stone him. Saul would never forget that. Paul would never forget that. It was only by grace that he was saved. He knew that clearly. But he was honestly thinking at the time he was offering service to God. And again, so does Isis. Making no excuse for the brutality, and and truly, sincerity is no excuse for brutality. In fact, sincerity is no excuse for anything. You can sincerely believe something that's wrong, it's still wrong. You can still sincerely believe that your way is the right way, but if it's not, it's still going to be the wrong way. Sincerity doesn't count for a whole lot. Truth does. And so, Paul was among those who would kill, thinking he was offering service to God. Verse 3, Jesus says, These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their, their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. So they're making their way across the valley, the Kedron, the ravine there, across 
ultimately to the Mount of Olives. It's, it's a slow walk. It's a slow-paced walk. I think they're probably pausing. Each time Jesus opens his mouth and begins to teach, they would pause. You know, back in chapter 15 when he says, I am the vine, probably paused in a location, looking back at that golden vine on the temple as he's drawing allusion to it. And different locations, they would pause. And here it's as if Jesus is saying, guys, watch your step. Who, who knows? Maybe even, and I'm just completely making this up, but maybe even Peter had just tripped on a little rock. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to stumble. I'm telling you these things right now so that you won't stumble, so that you watch your step, don't trip on the stones of hatred that are just ahead in the ravine of life that you will be crossing through. The hatred that surrounds. Now I want you to go back to verse 1 and listen again. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. That word stumbling there is skandalizo. In the Greek, where we get our word scandal. Don't be scandalized. In other words, don't be offended. And that's important. Because what Jesus is is saying to them is, I'm telling you all this ahead of time so later you don't take offense. Well, who would they take offense at? At God Himself. I want you to know following me is going to have this result in your life. This is what it's going to look like. This is what you can plan to experience. I want you to know this now so that you're not offended later. He is circumventing any possibility of apostolic whining. I'm telling you now. So later you don't come back around and start saying, God, how could you? Or, or Lord, why me? There would be none of that among his apostles. Frankly, there's far too much of that in the church today. Lord, why me? How come I? God, how could you? You want to be kept from playing the victim. You want to cease or avoid wallowing in worry. Listen, Peter said in 2 Peter 1.10, Be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble you want to be kept from stumbling from being offended from being upset with the Lord because of some tragedy or difficulty or hardship in your life you focus on your calling in fact you consider the certainty of your calling that's the first note we're going to, I'm going to give you six things to jot down as we go through this chapter tonight and number one is the certainty of our calling the certainty of our calling is the vision that he's given us The mission for our lives. And if we know we have been called by Jesus, if we know we have been chosen by Him, we're not surprised by the hazards and perils along the way. Those trials, those tribulations, the threats, the challenges we face, the certainty of our calling. As Peter and John would later state quite clearly in Acts 4.20, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. we got a call on our lives here. An undeniable call. And so we have to talk about this. Why? Because their calling was unquestionable. Because the Lord Jesus poured His Word into them. Words of spirit and words of life. So filled with the Spirit were they, so overcome by the Spirit were they, that they couldn't help but talk about Jesus. They couldn't help but live for Jesus. And so Jesus is commanding here love. And He's warning against hatred beforehand to keep them on their feet. 
And if we're focused on the calling of Jesus in our lives, it's far less likely that we're going to be stumbling, that is, offended when harm comes our way, when difficulty comes our way. Hey, I'm, I'm called by Jesus. Do what you will. But I must speak about what I've seen and heard. Jude writes in Jude 24 and 25, two of my favorite verses, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. I want you to understand this, he says. John 14, 15, 16. And then he'll pray for them in 17. I want you to get this now. So that later, when the attacks come, you won't be shocked. You won't be upset. You won't be offended. You will not stumble. He continues on in verse 4, saying, These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. Right? So if they stumbled, he was immediately there, immediately there to answer, immediately there to, to pick them up, to say, it's okay, Peter, don't worry about it. John, James, this is not a problem. Let me explain why. He was there. So he didn't have to explain what he's explaining here. But he is now. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Had any of them asked him where he was going? Well, Peter had. Didn't he? Look back. Chapter 13. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Now that to me sounds kind of like Peter asked him where he was going. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And of course, again, Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? (laughs) Peter always wants it now. You know, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. But now back in chapter 16, he says, none of you ask me where I am going. Listen, what he's saying here is Peter had asked him where he was going. But not out of concern for Jesus. He asked him out of concern for himself. He asked from an earthly mindset. Lord, where are you going? I want to go. As opposed to, tell me about where you're going to go. There's a different heart here that Jesus is pointing out. Peter was earthly minded. Peter had been there before. Matthew 16.23, when Jesus had to turn around and look at Peter, who had just made a wonderful declaration of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and, and Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. So what's the point? No one is asking Jesus, where are you going from a heavenly mindset? But from an earthly mindset. Well, how do you know that? Look at verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Listen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. A heavenly mindset is not found in a sorrowful heart. Let me say that again. A heavenly mindset, heavenly thinking, is not found in a sorrowful heart. You might say, well, wait a minute though. Jesus... 
Jesus Himself was called a man of sorrows, right? Of sorrows, yes, but not sorrowful. And there's a huge difference. Yes, Jesus was a man of sorrows. Yes, He had hardships and trials and difficulties throughout His life. Yes, He would end up crucified. Of sorrows, absolutely. But sorrowful, no way. Not in the least. Jesus was not a glum, depressed, bummed out guy. He was the one that the children rushed to. He was the one that the people flocked to. People don't flock to someone who's a bummer. You know? I've seen it happen. I've seen churches go dark when the pastor becomes a bummer. Who wants to listen to that? Who wants to sit under someone who's glum? Thank you, Pastor Eeyore. You know? And Jesus was not a sorrowful guy. He was a man of sorrows. He faced all kinds of sorrows. But he who for the joy set before him endured even the cross. Hebrews 12, 2. And I am convinced that Jesus was a man of great joy. I can't wait to actually see him in the heavenly places because I have a feeling that he has a real quizzical expression. And it's an expression that often we miss when we hear the parables or the teachings of Jesus that I'm convinced was going on there. You know? The smile of the Lord. Listen, you can have a lifetime of sorrows and not be sorrowful, but joyful. How's that possible? You can't choose your sorrows, but you can choose your joy. You can't pick and choose your hardships and your trials, your difficulties, but you can choose joyfulness in all of it. That's your call. None of us can determine what's going to happen next or how bad it may get in this world, but we can be joyful even in the sorrows. Jesus, a man of sorrows, but not sorrowful. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13. Solomon puts a fine point on it. He said, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. Under heaven. He says it's a grievous task God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. And it is. The earthly mindset, the focus on earth, global warming. Now, let me just be serious for a minute, because I I often poke fun at global warming, because I don't believe in it myself. You may, whatever, that's fine, we can still be brother and sister and brother and whatever. I I have lots of friends who are wrong about stuff. (laughs) But seriously, how frightening is global warming if you truly believe it's going to destroy the world? How terrifying. Well, that's an earthly mindset. I happen to know from a heavenly mindset that my father's going to destroy the world in due time. His way at his time, and he's going to take care of me and all who believe in him before that happens. So I don't worry about global warming. I truly don't. Should we be stewards of the environment, of the world that God gave us? Absolutely. Should we fret and fear and worry and look for life on other planets so we can move away from here eventually? Boldly going where no other moron has gone before? I don't think so. The earthly mindset. And we've talked much about that. The earthly versus the heavenly mindset. The earthly mindset is a sorrowful mindset. 2 Corinthians 7.10 The sorrow of the world produces death. And again, who wants that? 
Paul says in Romans 8 verse 5, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. And it's our choice. Set your mind on heavenly things and you will find joy in all things. Even sorrowful times will be times of joy for you if you have uh, a heavenly mindset. But if you are set on the things of earth, the things under heaven, it's a grievous task and it only produces death. Now back to the apostles here. Their minds are set on sorrow. They are sorrowful because they're looking inward. Even Peter's question originally about where are you going was not a question uh, about heaven. It was a question about their own loss and why he couldn't come. He was not looking upward. He was looking inward. But to be fair, we got to cut him some slack. Because there was something... The apostles in that moment still lacked. Verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, Jesus says, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Advocate, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. This is the second thing to note. Jesus begins now to talk about the vitality of the body. The vitality of the body, His body, the body of Christ, the church, the fellowship of believers. Remember, Jesus had said at the outset, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the zoe, the life. I am vitality and energy and animation. I'm all of that. I am life. And the promise of the simultaneous, unlimited, universal presence of the Spirit of Christ throughout the body of Christ, that's the vitality of the body. That's why the church is still alive and kicking after 2,000 years. Because the Spirit is our vitality, our our energy, our, our, our joy. And we've been talking about this on Sundays, talking about the fact that you don't have the body of Christ, the the church, without the Spirit of Christ. In the same way that a body without a spirit is what? Dead. A body without a spirit is dead. The church without the spirit would be dead, useless, incapacitated, unable to do anything of any value in this world. But the church is not without the spirit. And remember, Jesus had said in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. Jesus said that. And then Jesus said in John 15, 26, When the Helper comes, the Parakletos, the Advocate, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me. Now that's interesting because it's slightly different than what He said the first time. In John 14, he said, I will ask the Father and He will send the Spirit. In John 15, Jesus says, I will send you the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. And now here in John 16, 7, He says, if I go, I will send Him to you. So who sends the Spirit? The Father or the Son? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Because the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father. And the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Same Spirit. And if you're not convinced of that, just track it through the New Testament. 
Look at all the times the Spirit is used and all the qualifying words used with the Spirit. He's called the Spirit of God. He's called the Holy Spirit. He's called the Spirit of the Lord. He's called the Spirit of Christ. He's called the Spirit of Jesus. He's called the Spirit of the Father. All of these throughout the New Testament Scriptures. So it makes sense that Jesus would say, say, the Father will send Him. I'm going to ask the Father and He'll send Him. I'll send Him, the one who proceeds from the Father, and then I will send Him myself. And when Jesus says, the Father and I will come and make our abode with you, it's the Spirit. Same Spirit, the singular, the one Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that triune nature of God, And if you fully understand it, would you please talk to me afterwards because it still blows my mind. I don't know that we can completely comprehend the idea of God's triune nature and yet He's God and we're not. And by the way, there will be some things you will never fully understand about God. It's part of the joy of eternity. We get to be searching Him out and trying to understand, seeking to know. We will know more and more and more. And the more we know about Jesus the more we're going to realize we don't know as much about Jesus as we thought we knew about Jesus. And and that's the way it is here. I mean, isn't that part of the joy? You older believers, isn't that part of the joy of Christian living? Is that you keep finding out stuff about Jesus? It's awesome. It's a delight. And I'm so far off in my notes, I don't know what I'm thinking about. Oh, the vitality of the body. That vitality of His Spirit that Jesus now says, I'm going to send Him to you. In John 17.21, He prays this prayer that they may all be one. Speaking of the church. Even as you, Father, are in Me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You sent Me. Well, why does He leave out the Spirit? Because Jesus and the Father and the Father and the Son, that is the Spirit. The Spirit's involved in all of that because He's the Spirit of the Lord. But watch this. The advantage is not only for the body that Jesus would go away. The advantage is for the world as well. Verse 8. He says, And He when He comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Benefit for the world. Advantage, the world. Absolutely advantage for the church, for those who believe. For the Spirit comes in, E-N in the Greek, N, to abide. He comes upon, epi in the Greek, He comes upon to saturate and immerse that second portion, that double portion of shalom we talked about on Sunday. Isaiah 26, verse 3, you can look that up. However, for the world, we see the third aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit, and it is the para, as in parakletos, the para, which simply means alongside. And the para of the Holy Spirit... He doesn't come in the world. He doesn't come upon the world. But He comes alongside the world. He did me before I was a believer. He did you before you came to faith in Jesus to guide, to direct, to convict. To convict? How about you said that the Holy Spirit coming was an advantage to the world? That sounds more like a disadvantage. To convict. Well, come on back Sunday and we'll talk about what that really means. But among believers, 
The Spirit's work is completely different. Verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own initiative. But whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me. For He will take of Mine and will disclose to you All things that the Father has, Jesus says, are mine. Therefore, I said that He takes of mine and will disclose to you. Now again, we're going to cover this whole section on Sunday. Considering the Holy Spirit as we continue on our Paraclete Promises uh, study. But look at verse 12 just for a moment here. He makes a comment I find interesting. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I hear Jack Nicholson saying, you can't handle the truth. (laughs) I have more to tell you. I have so much to tell you, Jesus says, but you can't bear them now. In the Greek, and you might want to jot this down, just sound it out. It's, u dunamai bastadzo. Jot that down. Did you get that? Isn't that fascinating? Now let's move on to the next verse. No. Udunamai bastadzo. Why point that out, Rick? Because what he's saying is, when he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now, literally, you don't have the power to carry them. Dunamai in the Greek, dunamis, is power. When Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 to the apostles, remain in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high, dunamis, power. It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit we see happen in Acts chapter 2. We're going to get to all that in the, in the study through Acts. But right now, Jesus says, you don't got it. You don't have the power to carry all that I have for you, all that I want for you. They will have that power. Both when the Spirit is poured out on them and as they walk with the Spirit, that power will increase. Did you know that? That Holy Spirit power in your life increases. And how is that possible? Lesson, I'm going to put you on the spot. When were you baptized in the Holy Spirit? How many years ago? 40. 40 years ago. Do you know more power in the Spirit now than you did 40 years ago? The increase of Holy Spirit power. He will increase in you. Well, okay, you don't have the power to take up what I have to tell you right now, Jesus says. And I would find that frustrating. And in my Christian life, previously, I have found that frustrating. Lord, why don't you just give it all to me now? Just dump the dunamis all over me. Give me the Bible knowledge now. For those who say, wait, you've been studying through the Bible for 11 years and you're only in John? That's a long time. You know how important that's been for me personally? As opposed to just having the whole thing dumped on me? I couldn't have handled it. Neither can you. Why does He give us the entire Scriptures to pour over and walk through? It develops relationship with Him. It strengthens and it matures us. I'm talking about, number three, the necessity of maturity. The necessity of maturity. Now, they're going to have the Holy Spirit poured out upon them at Pentecost. And they're still going to do dumb stuff after that. 
And they're still not going to have complete understanding. Now, they're going to have a power to understand unlike anything they had ever had before. Unlike even this moment. Where Jesus says you can't handle it right now. You don't have the power to carry it. Spiritual muscle requires time and, listen, faithfulness to develop. What are you saying? you got to walk it out. For you younger believers, you've got to walk it out. Now let me promise you something. I've been married 29 years. My marriage is better now than it was on day one. Far better, far stronger, far more joyful, far more blessed. It really is. You couldn't have told me that on day one. Cheryl's mom tried to. I'll never forget Sharon saying, Oh, when you're older, you'll understand how much better marriage is then. You'll love each other more. It's different. You're not going to be all googly-eyed at each other. You know That was before Google was an internet search engine. <laughs> you're not going to have that look at each other like, Oh, you know. That's, because that's not really love. That's just, that's lust, really. That's what that is. But it will be better. And I'm sitting there going... Your mom doesn't know what she's talking about. You know, I was wrong. I have needed every moment of my spiritual walk with Jesus to mature. I am more mature in Jesus now than I was then. I still happen to be a little immature at times. I know it's a shocker. But... But the maturity process is an absolute necessity. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.1, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able. You're still fleshly. Wow. I mean, Paul's writing that to a church. Talk about Conviction. And then in Hebrews 5.4, Paul says, Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have trained their senses to discern good and evil. you got to practice faith? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it makes you stronger, and it makes you more faithful, and it increases your maturity day after day after day, which is why you don't get saved, and that's it. Now, some people try that. Oh, I went to church years ago. I did the Sunday school thing. Gave my life to Jesus at Christian camp. It was all fine. That was good. I don't need it now. Immature. It's one of the most immature things I ever hear a person say is they don't need Jesus or they don't need Bible study or they don't need prayer time or they don't need to attend, attend church or be involved with a church fellowship or a church body. Immature. You do need Him. And we continue to mature to the very last breath. Our last breath here, our first breath in heaven, guess what? Mature. You will have reached full maturity at that point because of the work of the Lord. But not yet. The necessity of maturity. Jesus is giving them all they can handle. There's more to come. And His Spirit is going to guide them into all the truth. But listen to this. One more verse. I love this. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. And I'm glad Peter's the one who wrote it. He said, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. What do you mean, Peter? Well, God is patient with the world, which is why people are still getting saved. You know, it's because He's patient that salvation is still ongoing for people who are lost or getting found or finding Jesus or falling in love with Him. And that's because God is patient, but He's not talking about that. He's saying... 
regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, He's saving you from yourself. God is patient with us. He's saving us from our immaturity and our lack of understanding and our faithlessness and our stupidity and all the dumb things we do. He's saving us from that. How? He's being patient with us as the Spirit of truth is speaking words of truth into our lives and slowly building up and maturing the body. Peter goes on, he says, Regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. And then Peter says, As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand. Peter writes, The fishermen, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. The patience of the Lord saves us from the crash and burn of unnecessary stumbling by allowing us the time to be taught and to mature in the Lord. And in the meantime, please understand this, He delights in faithfulness. You know what faithfulness is? Just broken down, the most simple definition I can give you. Faithfulness is... You're still here. Or as one writer put it, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Well, that doesn't sound very exciting. Oh, it's more exciting than you can imagine. But it's consistent. It's solid. It's true. Faithfulness. God delights in that. He loves it. My wife delights in my faithfulness. And I delight in hers. Long term. Still here. Still walking it out together. I look at her sometimes and I go, she's still with me. Huh. (laughs) Now that's faithfulness right there. (laughs) Continuing on, verse 16. And we'll come back and look at all of this stuff he's talking about, the spirit of truth, the spirit of the Lord. But verse 16 he says, In a little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. I have a feeling that was a conversation they had a lot. Peter, what's he saying? Oh, Lord, I'll ask John. He's close, right? John, what's he saying? I don't know. Ask James. He's a little more fiery. I don't know. Who knows what he's talking about? And they're all confused. Well, what is he talking about? In a little while, you won't see me. And in a little while, you will see me. Any guesses what he's talking about there? The resurrection. The resurrection. What they didn't understand in that moment was a little while to Jesus was three days. For three days, you're not going to see me. And in three days, you're going to see me. And they're going, huh? I don't get it. I don't understand. Listen, before we get to Jesus' explanation, and he does explain it to them, notice that they're not asking him. They're asking each other. Hey, what does Jesus mean by this? Hey, what do you think? Well, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. Nobody knows. Why aren't they asking Jesus? He's right there. He is right there with them. And they're not asking Him. How simple is that? Jesus, could you explain that? Done. But instead, they're over here having theological debate and having conversations and they're small grouping. And that's what we do. 
We do the exact same thing. We start debating what He means. And discussing what He means. And theologizing. And and I love this. This is so typical. Small group question. A passage is read, and then the small group leader looks up and says, So, what do you think He means? Let me be honest with you. I've sat in small groups and I've thought, I don't really care what they think He means. I want to know what He means. So why are we asking each other? Why don't we just start by asking Him? And no offense, but as a pastor sometimes, I get questions from people. Please don't stop asking questions. I shouldn't say this because this is when my emails just stop for like a month. (laughs) But I'll get questions from people. Rick, what do you think about this? And, And my first thought is, well, have you asked the Lord? Well, why don't you just ask Jesus? It's His Word. You know, why don't you open up the Bible? Well, Rick, you said this on Sunday, and I'm a little confused about this. Okay, well, go back and read it first. And pray about it and ask Jesus, because Jesus is right here. He is right here. He's walking with us across the Cadron Valley, through the valley of the shadow of death. He's right here. Ask Him first. You know what the problem is? It's sitcom Christianity. That's the issue. Sitcom Christianity. We want the answer tidied up and wrapped up by the end of the episode. We just want it done. We don't want it hanging on. Cheryl and I are watching this show right now, Parenthood. I don't know if you've ever watched Parenthood. We're watching Parenthood. We're, we, we binge watch, okay? Confession time. We binge, we have Netflix and we go back and there are shows that have been, you know, this one finished in 2013, so we heard that. You gotta watch the show, so we're watching it. This is a messed up family. Messed up. I keep telling Jesus an episode ends and I keep telling Cheryl. Jesus too, because he's there. But I keep telling Cheryl at the end of episodes, you know, if they were Christians, we wouldn't even have had an episode tonight. If they were just believers, there wouldn't have been anything to talk about because they all would have been fine. The selfishness is amazing. Anyway, so we're watching this show, and the thing that frustrates me is when a show goes by, and they leave you hanging, and then another show, and then another show, and another show. Finally, like the fifth or sixth show down the line, it resolves, and you just go, ah, that's that's better. And then something else starts up again, you know. But in our Christianity, okay, sitcom Christianity, I just want an immediate resolution right now. Please, don't leave me hanging. Sometimes God leaves us hanging. Sometimes He doesn't give us the immediate answer because we can't handle the immediate answer. We are still in the necessity of maturity. We're still dealing with this, learning these things as He is patient. But why doesn't Jesus just speak plainly to them at this point? Because time's running out. The clock's ticking. Why not just speak plainly? Listen in. Because Jesus is doing something right here with the apostles that is amazing. He's birthing joy. He's birthing joy. They're asking, verse 18, what is this he says a little while? We don't know, not know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will see me and again a little while and you will not see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep And lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. 
But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Ladies, if you've had two children, I just have one question for you. Why? I went through the first birth of our first son, Corey. I was there with Cheryl. It was the hardest night of my life. It was rough for her. Can I share with you before? I'm sitting over in the corner eating my little tuna, tuna fish sandwich because I was hungry. I mean, it had been like six hours labor, and I'm like, come on already, you know? So I go down to the little hospital deli there, get my tuna fish sandwich, come back up. I'm sitting there eating it in the corner, and she all of a sudden sits up, and I can kid you not, there was fire in her eyes, and she said to me, take that tuna fish out of the room. <laughs> yes, dear? <laughs> it was a hard night. <laughs> <laughs> 14 hours now some of you ladies went through worse 14 hours of labor no spinal thing she did that on the second time around why would you do that again it's the joy the joy so far surpasses the pain of the birth that, and it's a, it's a remarkable thing that, that women do forget I mean, you remember, but you don't really remember until you're back in the throes of it and you're looking at your husband again and saying, why did you do this to me again, you know? And Jesus says, that's the deal. That's what it's going to be like. He says in verse 22, therefore you too have grief now. See, their grief had already started. The eleven were already bummed. They're worried. They're troubled. And it will only get worse. And Jesus is telling them straight up, it's going to get worse, man. You have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Joy, joy, joy. It's going to be yours. It's going to be amazing. Number four, the proximity of joy. Their joy was so near. Just three days away. They didn't know. They're bummed. They're going to sink into a deep despair, a deep depression, watching the brutality of the crucifixion of Jesus, who they loved, who they followed, who they trusted, who they believed in, and they're going to watch Him bleed out on the cross. They're going to know that He's buried in that tomb, and they are going to sink into that sorrowful place. I remember... I had just graduated high school two weeks after graduation. My friend Rick Rudolph fell off the side of a hill and was killed instantly. And I remember the night I heard about it. He was part of a circle of about 10, 11 friends. We were all very tight and and he was killed. And it was shocking. And it was upsetting. But it was the first time in my life where I woke up the next morning and you know how you do that? You, you wake up and, and at first you open your eyes and it's a new day and then it all comes flooding in and you realize what's happened. What do you think it was like for the apostles on Saturday morning? On the morning after the crucifixion when they first woke up? I have no doubt they slept some. Their grief would have caused them to sink into fitful slumber at least. And waking to the sound, Peter hearing that rooster... And Jesus is dead. I don't know that anyone has experienced the level of grief that these guys would. Perhaps we have. Perhaps you can relate. But Jesus is saying, 
It's going to be bad. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be dark. You're about to experience your greatest sorrow, but a short three days later, they would know their greatest joy as they would see Him resurrected. Resurrected! Standing there before them, smiling, I'm convinced. Alive. But Peter tells us there's a greater joy than that. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome the faith, your faith, of the salvation of your souls. David called it the joy of thy salvation. Psalm 51, verse 12. For here's the thing, you see, for a little while we're not going to see Him. But in just a little while, you're going to see Him. In just a little while. Maybe three days. Maybe a few more hours. Maybe a few weeks or months or years. But I'll tell you what, the moment we see Jesus, it will have only seemed as a little while. I love the old Amy Grant song. In a little while, we'll be with the Father. Can't you see His smile? In a little while, we'll be home forever in a while we're just here to learn to love him we'll be home in just a little while and every momentary sorrow and every light and momentary grief that you may experience in this world will be turned to pure joy and it's so close that day when our joy is going to come to full term verse 23 in that day You will not question me about anything. (laughs) Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, He will give it to you in that day. In, In that day, when they saw Him in His resurrection. And they didn't, by the way. If you if you go read all the resurrection stories of Jesus' appearances to the apostles, they didn't ask Him a thing. They were more just like, You guys have some fish I can eat? Give Him some fish. They didn't ask him any more questions. They were done asking questions because there he was. What about for us? In that day is when we receive him by faith in his resurrection. Now now track this with me. Jesus says in that day you're not going to ask me any more questions. Actually, what he says is, in that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. So he says, we'll no longer question, but we'll ask. What does that mean? What's the difference, Lord? You're not going to question, but you're going to ask. He uses two words here in the Greek. Question is erotao, and erotao means to inquire. Need the info. I'm going to question you now. I want to ask you some questions. I, I, I need to understand this. Erotao. But the Greek word ask is aiteo. And aiteo, listen, aiteo is petition. You're not going to ask me any more questions, but you will petition. What's the difference? It's what I would call, number five, the proclivity of petitioning. 
I like that word proclivity. It just means our tendency. And what I believe Jesus is indicating here is our tendency, our proclivity, when we see Him, when we believe in Him, when we come to faith in His resurrection, when we're born again, we question Him less and we petition Him more. The questions as we mature in our faith, the questions go down and the petitions go up. As Les was praying tonight, did you hear questions? No. But lots of petition. He was asking of the Lord, but he was not questioning the Lord. The proclivity of petitioning. See, questions challenge. Petitions seek counsel. Questions demand answers. Petitions request help. Questions reveal mistrust. Petitions engender trust. Questions can have the effect of pushing back and doubting. Why that? How come this? Explain yourself. What does he mean? I have no idea. As the apostles have. And and if you know every single question they asked from chapter 13 forward... It was all questions of confusion and questions of doubt and questions of misunderstanding, not a single petition. But as you come to faith in Jesus and as that faith matures, we petition more, we question less. Petitions cause me to lean into the Father. Lord Jesus, I need Your help to understand Your Word tonight. That's a petition. Lord Jesus, my my wife is struggling right now with physical pain I'm asking for your healing power petition Lord how come you allowed this to happen question and the questions in our in our walk betray immaturity whereas the petitions reveal faith and faithfulness Ephesians 6:18 Paul says with all prayer and petition Pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. You give up the questions for the petitions. The questions, you know what? The answers are right here. And the answers are right here. As the Lord speaks truth to me, as the Spirit teaches me, understanding comes in, revelation comes in, and suddenly I'm not really asking questions of doubt and confusion. I am just petitioning the Lord. For His leading, His help, His nurture, His guidance in my life. Verse 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. And they hadn't. They'd asked questions, but they had not asked petitions. They had not sought the Lord in Jesus' name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full, He says. Ask and you will receive. Petition in my name. For Jesus might say, I have the peace that you're looking for. I have the power. I have the patience. I have the provision. He has all we could ever need. And notice that their petitioning, he says, will lead to joyfulness. You petition the Lord, you will find yourself joyful. You question the Lord, you'll find yourself doubting and sorrowful. Bring your petitions. It leads to joy. John 15, 11, Jesus had already said, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Psalm 16, 11, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. 
Jesus continues, verse 25, He says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father in that day. You will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Listen, the point Jesus is making here is the Father. The Father is at issue here. Jesus doesn't want the disciples to think He has to keep going before and persuading the Father to answer their petitions and their prayers. Which is why He says in the middle of the passage, I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. He says, I'm not saying that anymore. That's old school. That's what the priest did. You go to the priest... I got a problem. I got an issue. Would you take it to the Lord? And the priest would go in to the holy place and he would offer up incense and begin to offer prayers and petitions on behalf of the people. And then he would come back to the people. He was a mediator of the old covenant. An intercessor that they had to go through. Got to go through the Levites to get to the Father. And Jesus says, not anymore. No, that's that's old school. Listen. There are two positions at play here. There's our position, this side of heaven, and there's the Father's position on that side of heaven. From our position on this side of heaven, understand, interceding isn't pleading. Now chew on that for a minute, because it took me a while to come up with that little phrase. (laughs) Interceding isn't pleading. In other words... Intercession is not the power of persuasion. Someone who approaches the Lord in intercessory prayer, someone praying for the saints, making petition for uh, friends and family and and the fellowship, is not pleading with the Lord. and, And boy, you know, if you come... I read how to win friends and influence people and I'm using it on God. That's not intercession. Intercessory prayer is praying the Father's will. You're not convincing the Father of of anything. You are being convinced of the Father and therefore praying what He desires in the first place. That's intercessory prayer. And that doesn't come by lots of words, especially up front. We need to learn how to be quiet in prayer. You ever sat in a uh, room with a group of people and People start praying and you realize you can't get a word in edgewise because everybody's praying. And, and then there's like 15 seconds of silence and it just starts to get uncomfortable. So we got to fill the silence. we got to pray more. you got to throw words out there. And, you, and, and then one person prays something and then someone else comes in and prays the exact same thing that the first person just prayed. And I am starting to come to the point in my life where I appreciate long silence when I'm praying with my brothers and sisters. Why? Because it allows me time to hear the Lord. I love Mike, but I don't need to hear Mike. I need to hear the Father. Now, if Mike and I are praying and we're waiting on the Lord and we're listening for the Father, and Mike begins to pray the Father's will, and in my heart, I am absolutely tracking. I'm like, that's what I was hearing. Guess what? We both are 
in intercession, we both realize that the Father is calling us to pray specific things. Am I making sense here? Well, that, how do we get there? Patience, rest, quiet. It's okay to be quiet in your prayers, to wait on the Lord. That's intercessory prayer. Again, it's not the power of persuasion. Interceding isn't pleading. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Okay, so that's from our position on this side of heaven. From God's position on that side of heaven, listen, it is the Father's good pleasure to respond. He wants to answer petitions and prayers. He loves to answer petitions and prayers. He delights when His people come to Him interceding one for another. And He wants to answer that. And it had been His desire to do exactly what Jesus is describing here since Adam and Eve in the garden. Ever since they got kicked out of the garden for the fruit incident, the Lord has been desiring, had been desiring all the way to Jesus coming. For the kind of intimacy that Jesus describes right here. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf. I'm not going to be sitting here praying. I'm going to intercede. And He does intercede on our behalf in heaven. But He's not going to be sitting there with the power of persuasion. Trying to persuade the Father to answer our prayers. No. He says the Father Himself loves you. Verse 27. Because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. He loves you. He wants to respond directly to you. No priest. I would say to my Catholic friends, no priest is necessary. You have full access to the Father through the blood work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When that veil was rent, cut in half, God opened the way to the Holy of Holies that we might approach Him, that we might pray to Him, that we might come to Him directly. Psalm 103.13 tells us just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him, on those who want to come before Him. Our sin made that difficult. The sin of Adam and Eve in the garden and every sin that we've committed ever since made that difficult, distanced the Father. Because God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5-7, through 7, he, he says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, and as He Himself is in the light, if we're honest, if we're genuine, if we're authentic with the Lord, we're not playing games here, we're not playing religion, we're just coming to Him as we are. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Guess what? Cleansed from all sin, I can approach the Father. And I don't have to go through a pastor to do it. And I don't have to go through a priest any longer. Jesus says to the apostles right there in the flesh, you don't even have to go through me like you have been for the last three and a half years. You just go directly to the Father. Wow. Now, Jesus is there, and He is interceding, and He's taking all the prayers and collecting them, and I think He's doing a little translating, because sometimes my prayers are dumb. (laughs) And He's translating them, and He's pouring back. Pray this, Rick. Pray this. Here's what I want you to pray about. Wait, listen, you're not going to know what to pray if you don't shut up. (laughs) Maybe the Lord has never told you to shut up. He has told me to shut up. Pray this. And you pray the Father's will. And we have 
confidence, Hebrews 4.16, to draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 29, His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. You know, the, uh, the priest was flying on the airplane. And as he soared across, you know, 30,000 feet, the stewardess came up to him and she said, a flight attendant, I'm sorry, they're not called stewardesses anymore. That was sexist. Anyway, the flight attendant comes up to him and says, you look really stressed out. He goes, yeah, I I don't like to fly. And she tries to help. She said, well, doesn't, doesn't Jesus say in the Bible... I am with you always? And the priest said, no. He said, lo, I am with you always. (laughs) And the apostles say, lo, now you are speaking plainly and not using a figure of speech. Now you're talking words we can understand. Now we get it. They say in verse 30, now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Now you're making sense. You're not talking about vines and childbirth. I mean, think about that. He used the example of childbirth with 11 dudes. <laughs> they wouldn't have a clue, right? If he was talking to 11 ladies, they might go, oh yeah, grief, joy, gotcha. The guy's just like, I don't know, I just had a tuna fish sandwich and I got kicked out of the room. I'm not sure what happened there. These are plain words to plain Galileans. And I just love how they jump on board. Now we know we don't have to question you. And now we believe that you came from God. Now it's making sense. And I'm wondering why do they believe now? What changed in this instant? And I can't prove this. Because I don't know exactly what the apostles were thinking on this evening, but I know Jesus knew. And I think that the bulk of His teaching, chapters 14, 15, and 16, is He is answering them before they ask. He's anticipating their questions. He's saying things that they're wondering about that they don't get and they don't even know how to ask. And so He's just telling them. And He comes to this point and kind of breaks open with some plain speech and they go, we get it. And we believe that you have come from God. Well, how can they say we believe? Well, they say this. We have no need to question you. By this we believe that you come from God. You're answering all our questions before we ask them. That's amazing. He knows what is on their hearts, what's on their minds. And so now they say, now we understand. And Jesus says in verse 31, do you now believe? (laughs) In other words, really? You think you get it now? Remember what he started with. He said in John 16 verse 1, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. And he's going to tell them one more thing. One more thing they got to hear. One more hard truth. And it's this. They are going to stumble. They are about to. Verse 32. Behold, an hour is coming and has come for you to be scattered each to his own and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I'm not alone. 
absolutely astounding that Jesus is about to be crucified. He's about to be more alone than he's been in all eternity. But he's saying to the apostles, listen, you guys are going to be part of that aloneness because you're going to take off on me. But it's cool. I'm not alone. What's he doing? He's comforting them from the grief and the guilt that they're going to feel from leaving him alone so that later they can remember, ah, but he really wasn't alone. Yeah, I ran off like a chicken, but he wasn't alone. I never left Jesus alone because Jesus was never alone. Let me share something else, and this may uh, go wonky against your theology. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? A lot has been made in the evangelical world of the last few decades of the fact that in that moment God turned His face from Jesus and could not look at Him. And yet we see that nowhere in Scripture. We just hear Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does He say it? Well, He says it because He's quoting Psalm 22 and as any good rabbi would tell you, that's how you say Scripture in reference. You read the first verse of a passage. And all the disciples would know to go to that passage. Jesus was saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As He hung on the cross, He might as well have said, Guys, guys, Psalm 22. Go read Psalm 22. And if they did, they would read exactly in the psalm proclaimed a thousand years before what was happening before their eyes. But it was also the the Son of Man crying out. That sense of forsakenness. Son of God, who was also present, knew that He would not be alone. The Father never left Jesus alone. That's what I'm trying to tell you. That even in that moment when He was covered with the sin and the filth of mankind, that God cannot abide sin. I understand that, but I don't believe personally that there was ever a time where the Lord just turned His eyes and said, I'm not going to look at you. I reject you. He rejected the sin. He poured out His wrath on the sin that was on Jesus. Absolutely. But Jesus said... (laughs) And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. The Father is with me. And for every follower of Jesus for 2,000 years, you can proclaim the same thing. I am not alone. I am not alone. I am never alone. Everyone in your life might desert you. But Jesus is promising you, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. You're not alone. And he's the prime example of this in the flesh. I am not alone. The Apostle Paul could relate beautifully in his swan song. Quickly flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're almost done. I've just got to share this last thing with you. Or second to last thing, whatever it takes. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Just flip over there if you want to quickly. Let me read it to you. Paul is writing the last letter he would write. He sends it off to Timothy. Paul's in prison in Rome. He's going to be beheaded. That's the end for Paul. Well, actually it's the beginning. And he writes these words. He says, 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first defense, no one supported me. But all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But, watch this, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished And that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is joyful. He's not sorrowful. 
Paul's got the heart of an overcomer because he knows where he's going. He knows he's never alone. Just as Jesus said, I am not alone. How does Paul know that he's not alone? Back in John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Here's the point. You're about to stumble, boys, Jesus says. I'm telling you these things so that you will not take offense, so that you will not stumble, but you're going to stumble. Tonight. The time has come. I'm telling you this now so you won't stumble later, but you're about to go through the dark night of the soul. But I will keep you through it. How do we know, Jesus? How do we know we're going to get through? He says, take courage. Or literally, King James translation, which is right here, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Choose joy. Man, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag. (laughs) Choose joy. How can we possibly choose joy in troubled times, sorrowful times? Because I have overcome the world. That's number six, by the way, the inevitability of overcoming. And it is inevitable that you will overcome the world. How? Because He did. Because He did. 1 John 4, 4, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. So you know why I don't worry about global warming? He's overcome the world. Not a problem. Know why I don't fear ISIS or the global jihad? He's overcome the world. Know why I don't cower at the reality of Satan and evil and wickedness and the increase of lawlessness that we see on this earth? (laughs) Jesus has overcome the world. We're going to have struggles. We're going to have hardship. We will have sorrows and difficulties and even tribulations, little t, even tribulations in this world. But the inevitability of overcoming is that Jesus Himself has already overcome it all. And John would later write in 1 John 5, 5, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Be of good cheer. He has overcome the world. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Oh, we worship you. Because you overcame, we overcome. Because though you were a man of sorrows, you were not sorrowful, but you brought us true joy, inexpressible joy, the joy of our very salvation. And I pray that word, I think that's the word to pray tonight, over the fellowship, over all of us gathered here, Lord, would you just pour out joy. Bring joy. Help us to be heavenly minded people, spiritually minded people who though we may have sorrows are not sorrowful. May our joy be made full even Lord Jesus as your joy is full. And we praise you tonight in Jesus' name. And all the fellowship said? Amen. 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 Be of good cheer. God bless you all.